Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. The claim that Michael Lewis makes is that he thinks that Sam lost his way, but fundamentally he was more or less the same guy. Like he never really believed in crypto. He always saw crypto as instrumental. And that I think everybody who's ever met Sam agrees with is that Sam was not a true believer. He didn't really care that much about the industry. He just want, he saw it as an opportunity to make money. Um, but it wasn't because he just, you know, he loves cars or private jets or whatever. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two Kwan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, unnamed trading firms who are very involved. Um, I like that ETH is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and czar of Superstate. Then we've got Tarun, the Giga Brain and Grand Poobah at Gauntlet. And finally, I'm Haseeb, the head hype man at Dragonfly. We are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Okay, so uh, just for context for everybody listening, we are recording this on Monday morning, US time. The news by the time this drops, I'm certain is going to be 100% about the FTX Sam Bankman-Fried trial. So I, th I believe the trial starts on Tuesday. So by the time this goes out, I think it's going to go out Wednesday morning. Um, and so we're, we're uh, televising this from the past, basically. At the end, we should make our predictions and then our listeners can uh, can listen to whether we're horribly wrong or not about what will happen. Okay, all right. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll end the show with some predictions about how the trial is going to play out. I mean, that said, the, the trial is going to take multiple weeks, so we'll have plenty of time to do the play-by-play -play as the trial is actually playing out. But in the, the lead-up to the trial... All eyes have been on Michael Lewis. So Michael Lewis, uh, very famous finance writer. Uh, he was the uh, he was the author of the Flash Boys book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, and so he, long story short, he was kind of embedded with Sam Bankman-Fried for something about a year and a half uh, since 2021, before FTX collapsed. Basically, more or less lived with him in the Bahamas and was writing a book. Didn't know what the book was going to be about. And he's dropping the book tomorrow. So the day the trial begins, Michael Lewis's book is going to drop. Uh, it's called, what is it called? Finding Infinity or something? So I don't know, something, something like that. And um, he, he appeared on 60 Minutes to give something of a preview of what the book is going to be about and his perspective on Sam Bankman-Fried. And this interview has got the entire internet in a tizzy. I, I watched the entire interview. The first thing I'll say about 60 Minutes is uh, it's really weird that 60 Minutes is not 60 Minutes long. Like if you watch it, it's like 27 minutes long, which is like, there are so many commercials on TV. Yeah. It's there, crazy. There are multiple stories within an episode. So in aggregate, it's 60 minutes long. But you're right that the content is oh, only like Oh, 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 oh I didn't realize it wasn't the only story. Okay. You yeah, ever yeah, yeah, it's like 40 minutes of, I, I do not watch 60 minutes except a very, very brief snippets to, when to something be, important is To be is fair, the, the ads definitely make it less than 60 minutes, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, I watched it on 2X. It was 13 minutes for whatever the, the period of that 60 minutes was. So there were, there were a few snippets from the 60 Minutes story that got the internet really excited. Uh, one of them was this anecdote 
that apparently near the end of the FTX, before right before FTX collapsed, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, in part of his effective altruistic mindset and diff- thinking about ways to ameliorate risk in the world, uh, he believed that one of the biggest risks in the world was Donald Trump. And he knew that Donald Trump was going to be running in the next election. And so he contemplated paying Trump not to run in the in the upcoming election. Uh, and so apparently, word of this got to Trump. Trump named a price, which was $5 billion. And SBF, at the time that FTX collapsed, apparently SBF was trying to figure out the legality of paying Trump not to run in the 2024 election. Uh, but then FTX collapsed and this never happened. Kind of an insane story. I don't know what, what you guys think of this. Obviously, he, there's no way he had the liquidity to be able to pay $5 billion in cash to Donald Trump. So I, I, this, this feels like kind of a harebrained story. Well, Alameda had the customer liquidity. And I feel like at a certain point, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when they were doing the math, they did have access to $5 billion. I mean, there was also other stories where he was trying to invest multiple billion dollars in Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Like when these multi-billion dollar opportunities came up, I assume they looked at the metaphorical piggy bank, saw that there was high single digit, low double digit billions of dollars available and thought, well, what are the craziest things possible with this? You know, it's not the first time there's stories of him using multiple billions of dollars potentially on something. So I, I, I believe it. I believe he probably tried. I'm sure it was, that's not legal. Maybe it is. I doubt it. I can't see why that wouldn't be illegal. Not to rib Hasib like I did uh, at that time, but you know who was doing all of these uh, these deals of trying to to pay billions of dollars for these for both Twitter and uh, Trump was was McCaskill. So apparently the book the book describes the McCaskill piece as like the interlocutor for all those these kind of ideas. So I'm, uh, apparently he was the one who came up with the idea. <laughs> okay, but there's no way Will McCaskill could get to Donald Trump. That that sounds. Like an implausible sure, sure, sure. But, but, but the Trump. idea idea that, that he I, the idea that he's like the, the the Geppetto in the background to me is like the most funny part, kind of embar- even more embarrassing for EA in the long run. You know, to be honest, like if it really does cost five billion dollars to get Trump not to run, right? If that if that is real if he really was like, look, raise my price and I will not run in the next election, that actually doesn't seem like that much money for how much weighs on a US election. Like if you if you just imagine the, the the aggregate of all the corporate interests, like if that's really a thing, if Trump is like, I will not run in the next election if the entirety of the U.S. can raise five billion dollars, I, I feel like that actually seems like way too low of a price for the aggregate willingness to pay. You know, on the other side of that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I should have just crowdsourced it. You know, I'm sure if you set up like a GoFundMe in, in aggregate, the U.S. populace could probably scrounge up five billion dollars to to pay for Trump, but. There's also would have been, I think, unfortunately, a missed opportunity for a very funny timeline where he does get the $5 billion, pays Trump, Trump announces that he's not going to run, and then it's clawed back in the uh, uh, FTX estate bankruptcy, <laughs> and he answers he actually is going to run, which would have been good. But I, I feel like there's no enforcement for this type of, uh, hey, I'll pay you, don't run type of thing, other than like, I'll only pay Wouldn't you Trump just run anyway? Whatever. I mean, it's Donald Trump, right? Like, he's just going to be like, oh, I took the money. Yeah. Screw you. Like, what are you going to sue me for $5 billion because you try to pay me off to not run an election? That would be that would be the most interesting timeline. Just to put this in perspective from a quantitative background, in 2019 to 2020, across all candidates, according to my Googling, a total of $4.1 billion was raised and spent. 
for across all candidates for the entire cycle, you know, primaries in general. And so, you know, when you say could America crowdfund $5 billion for one specific candidate, well, in some sense, they fundraised about half of that for, you know, the competing candidate. I don't know if America could come up with $5 billion. It would make it like astoundingly expensive. Um, compared to prior I mean, other governments, other governments could could fund this. I also think other governments yeah, like airdropping very, U.S. citizens is very to true. donate is like that is very true. China the, China would instantly come up with five billion just to get to get Trump not to not to you know accelerate a trade war. I just looked up the North Korean GDP. Five billion is only thirty three percent of their GDP. So theoretically, <laughs> if they were really, I don't think North Korea. Yeah, I don't think North Korea would want to do that. North Korea loves Trump, don't they? Yeah, you, uh, you, you, you never, uh, Trump has it. been very friendly. Yeah, he's like their best yeah. friend. Yeah, but no, no. So I, th- I think what, what the difference, though, Robert, is that when you are funding a candidate to go against another candidate, it's a random process, right? You might win, you might lose. You don't really know what the outcome is going to be. If somebody says, "Pay me five billion dollars, and I will definitely not run," that is is such a different deal than funding a political candidate and having some probability of winning. There's a lot of uh, study in political science of the effectiveness of money in politics. And the trope is that, oh, money is, you know, it's kind of so it's, you could buy anything in politics, like you just spend enough money. And the, the overwhelming consensus within this body of research, that is just not true, right? Like the, the efficacy of using money to buy politicians or to win races is actually quite low. And you can see this actually from all the uh, candidates that SBF backed. SBF threw lots and lots of money into a lot of these like small congressional races, thinking that, okay, they were sort of uncontested. They had these EA aligned candidates who they sort of handpicked to run in these uh, less competitive states. And I think almost every single one of them lost, despite the fact that they outspent their opponents by a large margin. Uh, same thing with like Michael Bloomberg, right? Michael Bloomberg's outspent almost every single Democratic candidate, got almost no votes. And so there's a, there's a large body of research that basically says it's surprisingly hard to turn money into political outcomes uh, in the US. It's less true in other countries. But if, if somebody said like, look, pay me $5 billion and like another candidate besides Trump will win, I think very quickly the money would get raised for that. Like you could probably just get a room of ten people together who are sufficiently rich, and they'd be like, "Yeah, fuck Trump. I will, I will throw in, you know, a billion of my fifty billion to just avoid the next four years sucking." Yes, but you know, right now, absurdly rich people who would be able to raise five billion dollars have the ability to donate five billion dollars to a super PAC, which spends that much money to influence the outcome of the election. And you know, if all candidates across the entire last cycle were 4.1 billion. I'm pretty sure 5 billion would be enough to move the needle to almost guarantee anyone. Yeah. I, I don't think that's true. I, I think it's more uh, raising that is going to be difficult, right? Because it's like the connection between the funds to the outcome is kind of nebulous. I think actually there's some, some studies that suggest the causality is reversed where it's like the most popular candidates are therefore able to raise the most money instead of the other way around. And so you, you know, if I if everyone knew that you spend this amount of money, you get this sort of guaranteed outcome. I think that is like a pretty compelling product versus, you know, hey, maybe things will sort of turn out in your favor in, in an incrementally better way. Uh, maybe another question I'm curious about is like, has there ever been a country where this strategy has worked or like has been tried? And, you know, like, what is the like win loss record of this strategy? Because I, I bet you this has been tried somewhere. For much less money. I, I don't doubt oh. it. Yeah, I'm sure in like very highly corrupt countries, you just pay off a political opponent, you just give them like some sinecure in some place and you say, look, you know, you get to run this this uh, oil company over here and you get guess, to own this real estate company Russia over here. kind of, you could argue that right, Russia exactly. kind of, like Putin probably I mean, the oligarchs basically were, yeah, they like cut up the country and gave it to different people to 
prevent them from becoming political opponents. So if, if anything, that's like the hallmark of a corrupt uh, Well, maybe country. then that's why Trump loves this idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't that, know if he did is, love this idea. All we know is SBF. Well, supposedly this price came from no, no, him. Supposedly this came from he Trump. He set the price. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, he set the price of $5 billion. It came back to SBF, and SBF was contemplating it. That's the story. Now, again, we don't know how real that is, but that's the story. Yeah, he might have thrown it out as a joke number, you know? I mean, yeah, maybe. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, the, the problem, again, with Trump, though, is that, like, I think a large part of the reason why he wants the presidency is not for money. Obviously, he wants money. But I think a lot of it is really just the um, all the criminal cases against him that he wants to, you know, if, if, if he can fend them off much more uh, readily if he's president again. So uh, that he doesn't get for $5 billion. So another, another story that um, Michael Lewis detailed in his book. So again, we don't, we don't have the book yet. It comes out tomorrow. But I, I heard him on another podcast where he talked about when everything was collapsing. So when the quote unquote bank run started. And I, I, the one thing, I, I take a lot of issue with the way that Michael Lewis is talking about SBF. You can tell he's very sympathetic to, to Sam. Um, so he keeps talking about it as a bank run, which like, it's, you know, it was not a fucking bank run, right? Like it was, it was a bank run in the sense that people were trying to get out, but it, a, an exchange is never supposed to have a bank run, right? Exchange is supposed to be fully collateralized. So bank runs only exist for under collateralized systems, which he, he somehow never quite gets that in, in his explanations of what happened with uh, FTX. But anyway, when everything was collapsing, supposedly all of the lieutenants, uh, like Nishad, Gary, Caroline, uh, apparently everyone left to go to their parents' houses, which I thought was very weird where he was like, he was like, yeah, you know, this multi-billion dollar company was collapsing. And instead of like going in and going through the books and trying to figure everything out instead, everyone went to their parents. And it's like, okay, there was never a clear moment when I realized this company was run by 20 somethings uh, because that was their immediate instinct is, is, you know, go, go hang out with your mom and, and try to get her to explain, you know, explain to the cops what's happening. So any reactions to that? My reaction is that, Michael Lewis was swindled by SBF in some metaphorical sense. Like he believed the Kool-Aid, you know? Yeah. So I actually talked to Michael Lewis about, well, for the book after like this year. And I got the vibe that it's just like he already wrote the book and he's not going to change most of it. And like he's going to add a section at the end, you know, maybe Sam since the collapse. Or, I, I don't know. I, I, that was like the vibe I got was that there's like, He's not really changing the book until the end. And like my argument is that that strategy probably dictated the media strategy, which is why we got the outcome that we saw. It was it isn't necessarily an indicator of truth. It's it's more likely an indicator of a media strategy. So keep that so that that's just my maybe somewhat cynical. I, I think it's also true. Like when you're writing a book, you have to paint the central character as a complex figure. So if you just write a book that says he, he was a bad guy, he was lying the whole time, it's all, you know, genuine, he's, he's, a, he's a Chaucerian fraud, everything was, you know, all set up in order to steal money, that's not an interesting book. You know, that's just like a, you know, detail of a serial murder or something. It's an interesting book if there's a conflict at the center of it about, you know, the, 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 the genuine terror of wanting to improve the world versus this utilitarian kind of calculus that was, you know, that ran too close to the cliff edge I believe that he believes it. You can, you can tell from his interactions with the way he talks about SPF that he was genuinely dazzled by him and he genuinely thought he was a really smart guy. And I think everybody who, who knew Sam knew that he was a really smart guy and that he was also very strange and unlike pretty much anybody you, you've ever met who 
has ever run a company, you know? Like I know some people who are like Sam, but they don't run companies. Um, that part of it was, there, there was another part where he mentioned that Sam said at one point that everybody over the age of 40 was obsolete. And that that's part of the reason why he like kicked them out from all his companies. He ignored advice from lawyers. I mean, this is stuff that, that I think uh, many of us have seen in our interactions with FTX is the fact that everybody who worked there was like in their 20s, more or less. I think the, the more details that come out about, uh, you know, some of the famous crypto criminals from the, the past, you know, two years, like the less sympathetic they, they are. There's also this the evidence that came out um, in the Terra trial. Uh, it was internal chat logs between Doe and uh, I think Daniel or someone else at, at Terra. Talk about Doe basically intentionally creating fake transactions to simulate uh, uh, activity on the Terra network. And it's like, okay, it's very difficult to then buy the story that this was a deployed design scheme and Doe didn't know this was going to happen. And it's like, oh, no, you actually knew this whole time. And similarly with FTX, like, the more evidence that comes out, the more damning it is that, uh, you know, this is, this is simply fraud uh, from the very beginning. Well, so I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say that I think the, so the, I, I think this is one place where Tarun and I seem to disagree, which is the question of the genuineness of Sam's intentions versus, uh, you know, what he actually did. So very obviously at this point, what Sam did was very fraudulent. Um, you know, all the stuff about like the, the accounting backdoors and, you know, all the stuff that they did in order to obfuscate the fact that Alameda was, had privileged access in the exchange. And uh, even when they claimed they didn't and blah, 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 all this stuff. So very clearly there was a lot of subterfuge and a lot of fraud taking place at FTX. The core question though, is like, and this is, and this is, it seems like to be the, the central conflict of the book is were Sam's intentions genuine of wanting to be an effective altruist, wanting to improve the world, blah, blah, blah. It seems to me like it's hard to come away with the answer not being yes. Um, I don't know, if, Tarun, if you still disagree with that. Because it seemed like after, when we did the show after the FTX collapse, you, you disagreed yeah. with it. I, I definitely disagree with that. Just my personal interactions have always just been, generally been, was a generally extremely self-centered person who had very little to care about all of these causes, except that they were really good branding exercises for him. There's very little I've ever interacted with him where I actually think that he believed what he said if it wasn't just like optimizing his local utility function. And I just like, it's just, he, he was always like that. So it's like really hard. Just think about the linear versus logarithmic wealth debate he had with Dan Robinson. Do you remember this on I Twitter? I do. Yes. I mean, there was just like insane amounts of. Well, of, well let of, me ask like, you, what, what do you selfish, think he was like, actually, what do you think his actual utility function was, as, as you put it? What do you think he really was optimizing for? I mean, I think he just like likes fame and power and being rich, right? Like, I mean, the, the whole type of like, hey, I'm like this ascetic billionaire narrative has happened before, by the way. There have been multiple of these like, I'm a homeless billionaire and like I give away all my money type of things. I won't name the one that I'm thinking of because I actually I've met him before and he's he's a nice guy. He's uh, but he's much nicer than <laughs> Sam, let's say. But I, I there is, Wait, there he's, is a, one he's a real estate billionaire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a real estate billionaire. And so there's sort of this thing of like I think he realized that was like a very clear way to differentiate himself in a market filled with sharks, like you know, Justin Sun and CZ and people that, you know, like they're extremely transparent in that dimension, right? Like their utility function is like make more money or have more volume or whatever, right? Almost so transparent that it can be viewed as gross to a certain type of people. 
But those certain type of people who also have a lot of money, they need a narrative to be wooed, to be swooned, to part with their their capital. And his entire thing was about making that narrative and that it was about trying to trying to be like the Western institution friendly, but I'm still money grubbing type of person. And there's just like a general level of selfishness with him that I, I think was so palpable that it was like hard to square that with the other stuff he said. And and like, look, I, I feel like my first job was working with a billionaire who's spending all his money on doing science research. And all I have to say is like, I've seen people who actually give away their money. And I will tell you that I, there's no fucking way in hell Sam was close to that. Robert, what's your take? Yeah, my, my take is very simple. Like there's no way that he had good intentions when the core of his identity was a facade. Right. Like he would go into as much publicity as he can saying that SBF drove a Toyota Corolla and that he was a vegan and that everything he was doing was about giving back money. None of this was true. He didn't drive a Corolla. He wasn't a vegan. He wasn't giving any money back. Wait, I he, mean, I'm pretty he, sure he was a vegan. No, wait, wait, he wasn't. A wait, vegan. Was he not a vegan? I thought no. all the information came out that he wasn't exactly. a vegan. No, no, he's yeah. vegan. He's vegan. Yeah, he's sure. complaining about I, there being I, no I, vegan food <laughs> in prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, honestly, I, that is one thing all my interactions with him have in person have been consistent. He's always at least. Okay, I've read information on the internet. And obviously, you cannot trust the internet completely. But I've read information Technically, on if the you only eat candy bars, that is technically vegan. So just FYI. Okay. But there was people that were pointing out instances where he was like, consuming non-vegan things i'll go i'll find this for a future chopping okay block. <laughs> all right great very important investigative journalism here on the think, chopping block i do think that toyota corolla thing is a great example right it's a meme perpetuated by the second in command was that guy's name salami salami ryan salame it was a meme perpetuated by him but then like they bought this private jet which just came out because like actually the private jet uh, Lesore is like suing the FTX creditors and the FTX creditors like you have to give us the money back and there's this big kerfuffle between them and it's like he would always talk about like oh I have like humble behavior but then like you know go buy a private jet it, it, it's not consistent right I thought the other thing that's funny is that the um, the the yacht that uh, what's his name bought Tribuco was actually mm-hmm. bought by the company oh like oh. that came out in the huh. same air. All this tri- there was a, there's a lawsuit about the transportation costs that they that came out like last week. I think probably just ahead yeah. of this trial, like it was like purposely dumped. <laughs> there was also a lot of stuff about the parents making a bunch of money, like getting millions of dollars on getting on payroll. His dad was being paid a million dollars a year. Um, so there, there there were there were a lot of instances of you know kind of people picking at the corporate treasury in different ways. Yeah, the the parents one is interesting because I, I I do wonder if there is criminal liability for that, not just strictly civil. I I don't know. I I, I mean I hear what you guys are saying, and obviously I, I agree that there was a lot of bad actions, and there was a lot of willful, just kind of yeah, just sort of flagrant, you know, people just grabbing money out of out of FTX wherever they could. At the same time, it's 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 hard to square. Like, look, if you wanted to just be Justin Sun, you can just be Justin Sun. Like this is the one industry where you can just do that. Like as Justin Sun shows very convincingly. I don't think I don't think there can be ten Justin Suns, and right. And so like if you're already starting after him, I think there are ten Justin Suns actually. There's a lot of Justin Sun types in this industry. But 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 if you're going for the opposite market, where you're not going for the Asian market, 
is it's quite different. I do think like you have to have, but you but have here's to be the problem with that story. Character. Here's the problem with that story. So this is exactly one of the things also that, that Michael Lewis talks about. So in his interview, he says, here's a quote, this isn't a Ponzi scheme. Like when you think of a Ponzi scheme, I don't know, Bernie Madoff, the problem is there's no business there. The dollar coming in is being used to pay a dollar out. In this case, they actually had a great real business. If no one ever cast aspersions of the business, if there hadn't been a customer, a run on customer deposits, they'd still be sitting there making tons of money, right? Now, the reality is, and I think actually Michael Lewis, uh, uh, he, he mentions this in, in the interview, uh, that FTX US was a total failure. FTX US had almost no deposits. It had very few users. They had almost no market share. And almost all the money he was spending on marketing was in the US market, right? Their biggest market was Korea. Second biggest market, I believe, was Singapore. Um, like they, they, their, their market share was almost entirely outside of the US. And so the idea that like, well, you know, like he was uh, such a great uh, cultural figure and, you know, it, it really resonated with people. Like people outside the US didn't give a shit that he was a effective altruist or whatever. They just like, they just trade on FTX because it's just another crypto exchange. How many US funds invested in Binance? I agree with you, but do you think the US funds invested because he was an effective altruist? Right, I think they invested because he's like did an MIT that, crazy grad that thing. That thing no, did you read that fucking Sequoia thing? Yeah, but that's not why Are you why kidding me? Are you kidding me? Come on. You think if he was not an effective altruist, they would not have invested in FTX? I think if they didn't have a nice narrative to be like, crypto has changed. It's not always criminals and scallywags. Look, there's this guy who's doing something <laughs> nice. It wouldn't have worked. It would not fucking work with the LPs. I, I, I really do I, think that that is a truism. I, well, I, you can argue I over mean, the magnitude, but directionally, I think yes. it only happened. Directionally, yes. Directionally, yes. I just think that it was not, like, Tarun kind of makes it sound like, you know, he was sort of, uh, he, he was sitting in his lair, you know, kind of, uh, you know, playing with his fingers and being like, ah, ha, 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 here's what I should do. I should pretend to be an effective altruist. He's playing League right? of Legends. He was That's doing this. Lair. Yes. He was doing this for 10 years. He was doing this since he was at Jane Street, before he had any LPs, before he had any capital, um, like clearly the only sensible story is that it started from a place of very genuinely trying to perform effective altruism and continue to do it to the very end. Like he was talking about paying Trump $5 billion to not run. I think, I mean, again, I, think I don't know this, how real that was. I, I think but this even, idea that it can be, it can be genuine in the beginning and not genuine later is actually quite important for you to consider. Like it, it can, it can flip, right? It can metastasize. Yeah. yeah look, I think I, I agree with you. It can metastasize, right? But did it flip in the sense that at a certain point he stopped trying to do what he originally set out to do or that his means through which he was, he was willing to do what he originally set out to do became more and more warped over time. I think those are two very different claims. And that, and, and that is kind of the claim that Michael Lewis makes is that he thinks that Sam lost his way but fundamentally, he was more or less the same guy. Like, he never really believed in crypto. He always saw crypto as instrumental. And that, I think, everybody who's ever met Sam agrees with, is that Sam was not a true believer. He didn't really care that much about the industry. He just want, he saw it as an opportunity to make money. Um, but it wasn't because he just, you know, he loves cars or private jets or whatever. Like, clearly, he was, he was motivated by all of the shit that he was doing. And you can argue that he was incredibly ineffective at doing it. Clearly, he's done way more damage to effective altruism than any single person ever. Um, and way more damage to every single one of the causes that he was trying to endorse. Um, probably gave more ammunition to Republicans than Democrats in retrospect. But I think it's hard to argue that he, it, that it was a facade. I just think there's a difference between genuine, uh, genuine intent at the beginning of uh, an idea and continued 
following of that intent or that intent got you to a place where you changed your direction. And in his case, it seems very clear that it was he got to a certain place because of that. And then at some point he realized leaning into it, but not really believing the doctrine was more valuable. Now, do you tell me, would you tell me that's still genuine intent? I don't think so. I, I, I actually think that means that you're sort of like you're piggybacking off a, a movement that in a way that is like disingenuous to, to its actual ideals. And, you know, that clearly that's, that's been shown to be true uh, at, at this point, but it just, I, I think this idea that genuine is a static quantity. Like I, I dictate I'm genuine 10 years ago and then I'm genuine forever is not, that's not really a, how this works. I, I feel. Yeah. Here's my read. Um, just looking at things that actually occurred, not trying to read into SBF's mind and like think about like, well, what what did he want? In terms of things that actually occurred, he spent billions of dollars of money that didn't belong to him to pump up the SBF and FTX brand. Billions of dollars. How much money did he actually spend on altruistic things that weren't about pumping up SBF and FTX? How much did he actually spend on like really furthering the world or like charity or like genuinely good causes. Very, very little. And when I just look at the actual track record, yeah, sure. I bet even $5 billion to Trump was going to all be about the SBF, like slayed the dragon marketing campaign if it ever happened, right? Like all of it was not altruism. All of it was selfish that I can see. And so like, even if he originally started off on this path of trying to do the most amount of good by making the most amount of money and giving it back, the track record doesn't say that. The track record says that he was just extremely selfish. And whether he started that way or not, I don't know. But like from an external perspective, I think SBF was not altruistic in his intentions at all. Mm. That's fair. I, I definitely agree with you. When you tally it up, SBF did enormous damage to pretty much everything he touched. Yeah, he was like the reverse Midas. I mean, like, <laughs> well, that is just Midas, right? I think. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Some people—that's not true. All of these book authors are making a ton of money. <laughs> in fact, in fact, Agreed. I just I just bought this book, the Number Go Up book. I'm going to read it because I'm kind of curious. <laughs> okay, good, good. Tom, we're going to give you the last word before we uh, switch topics. I'm just so tired of talking about it. SBF and effective altruism and like, I, you know, this okay, feels well. very much flashback from like 12 months ago. And I feel like there's, there's more and more news out there in crypto these days. There is not, we are going to be talking about this for the next fucking two, three weeks until this trial is over, dude. So get, get, well, let's get ready about, for it. Let's, let's take another flashback to, to our friend Suzu. Oh, good. Yes. So, um, in other news of crypto villains, uh, so Suzu was just arrested in Singapore so he was in Changi Airport. Uh, I no idea why. I, one would assume that he probably would not want to show his face outside of uh, Dubai, where I understand he's normally living. Uh, but um, he was picked up for contempt of court. So I think a lot of people were hoping that, oh my God, Suzu's been arrested. It's probably for being a bad person and crashing the market. Uh, but the reason why he was arrested and why he was, he's serving a four months in jail for contempt of court is because of his unresponsiveness in the bankruptcy proceedings. So basically, he's not picking up the phone and being cooperative, uh, and that's why he is in jail. So um, presumably now he will be forced to cooperate with the liquidators. But as far as we know, there's not been any uh, broader uh, criminal charges that have been uh, brought or alleged against Suzu. So 
not quite the resolution we wanted, but at this point now we do have the major crypto villains of the last cycle. SBF now under trial, uh, Do Kwon uh, also you know under arrest, uh, awaiting his trial, and uh, Suzu in jail. So, Ky- what about Kyle and his chicken shop? Kyle chicken shop. Wait, we what, talked about this like shop? months ago. He was like speaking in code on the internet and like nobody knew what he was like meaning, but he was talking about opening up a chicken shop as his next business. And everyone thought he was talking about laundering money. But then he did actually open the chicken shop. He did actually open it. Where? Like a fried chicken restaurant in Dubai, I think. I totally okay. missed this. Yeah. I, I missed yeah. this completely. I don't think we talked about this on the show because I would remember this. Um, interesting. I did not know that he started a chicken shop. Well, you know, uh, if he does not leave Dubai, I'm sure that he will be able to run a great chicken shop uh, in peace. So, but um, I, I would assume that both, I think I think in the in the press release about the arrest, they mentioned that they also wanted Kyle and Kyle was still at large uh, or they could not, they could not determine his whereabouts, which I think means probably he's in Dubai. They just have to show yeah, up to the chicken restaurant and look well, Dubai doesn't have extradition treaties. So unfortunately, yeah, uh, hard to, hard to get people out of here. Hey, can I ask a quick question? If you guys made a movie with Suzu and uh, SBF, who would you cast? Because I just watched Dumb Money, the movie where they like cast um, I, the guy from Parks and Recreation as Ken Griffin, and Ken Griffin got very mad and like wrote on the internet about how this guy doesn't look like him or whatever. <laughs> but like, who do you think you would cast in these worlds? Jonah Hill for SBF. Jonah make it a comedy. Yeah. Jonah Hill was the guy who played uh, in the Social Network, right? Wait, what? No, super. No. That was no, like, who's the guy? Yeah, what the fuck is that? His was name? Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. Jesse Eisenberg. Jesse Eisenberg. Jesse Eisenberg. He's probably too old now, right? Probably. Yeah, he's he's probably like in his late thirties. Uh, I mean, in Hollywood. John Hill also lost a bunch of weight, so maybe not a good fit anymore. Okay, true, true. A good um, actor can manage their weight for the role. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Christian um, Bale. Also, I feel Very like with now all the all the augmented crazy CG stuff. I'm sure that it, it doesn't even matter. Like you probably don't even. I'm sure the writer strike doesn't allow you anymore. to do that, but maybe. Maybe the maybe the next writer strike that doesn't have AI writers will. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, at this point in crypto, ChatGPT can write the script. It'll probably make more sense than what actually happened. But Suzu is an interesting character. How about the guy who is Ken in Barbie? I forget that guy's name. Ryan Gosling. You know what I'm talking about? No, no, no. Oh, sorry, no, no, no. The Asian, the Asian, Asian, the Asian, Asian Ken. Wait, Ryan Gosling for Suzu would be a very interesting casting choice. <laughs> that that would be bold. That would be bold, actually. That would be. I feel like that would be funded by Three Arrows if he yeah. had Ryan Gosling <laughs> play Suzu. No, no, they would have Ryan Gosling play Kyle. That that actually does make sense because Kyle is um, Kyle's a pretty handsome man. So I feel like I feel like that that could work actually as a casting choice. Anyway, yeah. So I, I don't know. It, it does seem like we're now getting to the point. Okay, so. Let's let's take a step back. SBF trial is about to start. The entire world is going to be focused on this thing. Like it's already front page news. The trial hasn't even started yet. Um, I, how do you feel about the fact that once again, the entire world is fixated on the SBF story? We're probably not going to see the end of this for like at least a couple of weeks. And uh, there's, there's going to be more stuff after the trial. There's going to be sentencing. There's uh, possibly more trials over some of the um, the uh, political donations. Uh, it, it does feel like maybe. This is the last step before we finally get some closure 
on the 2022 kind of, you know, series of terribles. Because we've got, you know, Doquan, we've got Suzu kind of, I mean, not really, you know, whatever, contempt of court. Uh, but now finally the SBF trial is coming. How do you, how do you guys think about that? I, my assumption is this is not going to be the end. Even if he's guilty, he's going to appeal it. It's going to stretch on. I mean, do you remember what happened with Elizabeth Holmes? Like that thing lasted for seven years. I think SBF has the intention and the means to stretch it out. I, I feel like this is going to be a narrative for years, unfortunately. Like I wish it was the end of this chapter, but having watched like other cases just stretch on like in perpetuity, I, I see no reason why he's not going to pursue that same path. I do think if um, the FTX current um, creditors are able to successfully sue for damages from his parents, it'll be kind of interesting because the Elizabeth Holmes trial didn't have the like clawback aspect of like the company trying to claw back the funds used to fund the trial. Whereas in this case, it, that is actually true. And it'll be actually quite interesting to see how successful that is as a strategy. Yeah. That, that said, I mean, it seems kind of symbolic, right? Like relative to the amount of money missing, the parents probably have, you know, well, I just, I mean, they million, still have to pay million. their, still have to pay yeah, their legal bills. funded by an outside party, I believe, right? Like, I believe that was reported. That there's some third party. No, that was just, the, the, I thought that was just the business. bill. I thought that was just bail. Oh, that might be right. That might be right. I see. So I, I, I and that, and he fucked that up, right? Like that, that bail money was useless because he <laughs> went true. back to jail. <laughs> yes, true. Yeah, it's, I, you, you are definitely right, uh, Robert, that this is going to continue and drag on for some time. It's not, it's not really the end. That said, I think the media attention will end once there's a guilty verdict. Like, there will be, I mean, at this point, almost everybody expects that there will be a guilty verdict uh, on at least some of the charges. There will be appeals and there will be other charges brought in, blah, 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 blah. But like, once you get the first guilty verdict, it's kind of like, ah, oh, everyone sort of breathes a sigh of relief. Justice system has worked. Now there's the question of sentencing and blah, 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 and whatnot. But more or less, the answer that everyone was waiting for arrives, which is that, okay, he's, he's, he's going to serve some time in prison. And I think that was also kind of true of Elizabeth Holmes. Like, I believe, you know, even she started her prison sentence like within the last year, I think. But like the, the, the totality of the attention and the, the grip that it had on the nation ended way, way before that. Uh, and so I think that'll probably also be true of SBF. And I think crypto on the whole, I feel like the two big milestones are one, the SBF uh, verdict, you know, at least one guilty verdict that like, okay, there, he, there will be prison time uh, despite the you know, other cases and the appeals and whatever. And then second is when people get paid back from FTX. So when, when you start seeing people getting their money back, whether it's 40 cents, 50 cents, 60 cents on the dollar, whatever it ends up being in the end, um, then people can finally move on, you know, and say, okay, that was a, that was a bad story. Uh, crazy for those who lived through it, but now like, there's just not that much more to talk about. And I feel like we kind of need that as an industry to be able to really move forward. I don't know. It's part of the healing process. I think. I agree, but my production does not going to be the end of the F. TX and SPF drama. I think there's going to be multiple movies. It's going to stay in yeah. the discourse long past <laughs> yeah. the point where we yes, were all sure. bored movies. to tears. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I really wish we didn't have to talk about the trial, but I'm, I'm, I, I think it's very likely we will, uh, unfortunately, but we we'll should try get to keep it relatively on. short. Yeah. We should get a guest on to talk about the trial who like knows exactly how these things are. No, dude, I don't want to get a guest on to talk about the trial. <laughs> 
Like, I, I really don't want this show to be, every other freaking show is going to be about the SBF trial. We should at least try to minimize the amount of SBF stuff we have on here. Uh, there, no doubt we'll have to talk about some, but I want to at least not make this the SBF show. He's already taken enough from us, man. Yeah, that's true. He wrecked everybody's so, souls. He wrecked all of our souls. Um, okay, so w- one more topic I want to talk about um, in the time that we have left. So there was a uh, a blog post that was dropped by Vitalik recently that's gotten a lot of people talking. Uh, and the subject of this blog post is protocol enshrinement. So protocol enshrinement is this idea where you have a lot of innovations taking place at the application layer. So people building things like liquid staking, people building things like private mempools or you know MEV auctions or um, you know uh, uh, different precompiles, ZKVMs, all this stuff. Much of the stuff that we invest in and we look at as uh, investors and as uh, you know uh, thinkers in the crypto space. His the question that he asks in this blog post is when does it make sense to say ah this thing is so important to what is happening in Ethereum and potentially even jeopardizes the neutrality of Ethereum. Uh, to allow all this innovation just be happening in the application layer, uh, that it makes sense to grab some of the stuff and pull it up into the protocol layer itself and so-called enshrine it into the protocol. So naturally, this has been done in the past with things like precompiles. So precompiles are when you have some piece of code that runs so often or is so useful generally uh, that's very inefficient to do directly in the Ethereum virtual machine. And so instead, you have basically this machine code that's highly optimized that runs this thing for you so that it's not as gas inefficient as it would be running it in the EVM. And the question is, are there more things that we should sort of quote unquote precompile or build directly into the base layer? A lot of this conversation has been triggered by Lido. So Lido, for those of you who don't know, is a liquid staking protocol. Uh, we are investors into Lido. Uh, they Basically what they do is they allow you to tokenize your liquid staking um, uh, stake and trade it, trade it and out of it, and but you could just passively sit in it and get yield and sell it anytime you want to. Um, so Lido has now risen to something like 30, 30-ish percent of total uh, ETH staking deposits, is that correct? It's like 32, 33, something like that. 32, 33. Uh, and there's a lot of concern now that it is becoming one of the most dominant single players in the staking universe, and that perhaps there should be something done at the protocol layer uh, to avert the dominance of Lido, because it could be a threat to protocol security. If there's a single proof-of-stake actor, that or quote, single actor, even though uh, the, the proponents of Lido would argue, well, Lido, it's a decentralized system. There are a bunch of different validators that are in the Lido network. So Lido looks like one big thing, but actually it's like 30 validators or something, whatever, some, some large number of professional validators that are part of the Lido network. Uh, and so when stake goes to Lido, it's actually split among all these different validators and they would have to individually collude with each other. It's not like Lido is one big monolith. Um, that's the pro argument. Uh, there's a lot of people on the anti side who say Lido is unsafe. And I think a lot of that is what triggered this discussion from Vitalik. So curious to get your guys' reactions to this enshrinement conversation. Uh, and if you feel in particular about Lido, because it seems to be driving a lot of this conversation, uh, whether there should be something that takes place at the protocol layer to avert the dominance of Lido in, in staking. Well, I think the first debate is, is the dominance a problem? And I think like within the community, there's obviously two very different views. And like, I think it's still too early to say that it necessarily is a problem, right? Um, If it's a problem (laughs) and a large enough portion of the Ethereum community, staking community, protocol developers, et cetera, think that it's a problem, then it's like, move to step B, how do you potentially like 
take some of these pieces and move them into the Ethereum protocol. But like, I don't know. I think like it's almost more contentious to sort of resolve that like Lido is a problem because it's a successful application. Like just because it's successful does not make it, you know, necessarily a problem. Yeah, I think it was entirely predictable that there would be concentration and extremely positive, strong network effects around liquid staking ahead of time. So I'm kind of surprised this was not discussed. And I think the, the intention or the decision not to include liquid staking was intentional to avoid sort of the, you know, few validator, you know, concentration that you get with like DPoS. And so it, we're kind of just like bouncing around these different things where it's like we want and now that even even the FSM there being too many validators and that potentially slowing consensus and slowing that. So it's like you, you can't have your cake and, and eat it too, where like you don't want you want a bunch of validators, but you don't want too many validators and you want liquid staking, but you don't want, you know, there to be this third party, you know, uh, dominant liquid staking provider. Like these are just sort of classic, I think, uh, market dynamics, you know, playing out kind of kind of as predicted. And I think to Vidoc's point in the blog post, too, he talks about, well, if, you know, if we did build something like this and try into the protocol, it would probably look like rocket pool. And so people can opt for that today if they want, but it's, you know, it would effectively just be, be placing something like that um, as like a primitive in, in, in Ethereum. It's very clear one of the design goals of Ethereum Proof of Stake was that they really wanted to encourage sort of home stakers, people just running on their own commodity hardware, some staking stuff so that the, the, the staking pool, or it's not staking pool, the validator set is as broad as possible and involves as much normal folks on commodity hardware. Um, it's very clear that that drove a lot of their decisions, such as, for example, to not allow delegation, as you mentioned, Tom. Um, delegation now is kind of a mainstay of a lot of proof-of-stake networks. Ethereum was like, no, we don't want that because we don't want to get this concentration of professional validators that normal users will just point their lasers at this great validator and they don't run anything themselves and then you just get this concentration of validators. And so they were like, look, we're just going to make it hard. We're going to make it hard for users to... Uh, delegate or to do something like delegation. Uh, and then, then hopefully that's going to create this ecosystem of home validators. And instead, what we see is that the market gives people what they want. And what people want is they want a passive way to get access to staking yield while delegating the responsibility of actually staking to others. And that's Lido and Rocket Pool and all these other um, you know staking systems. And so it, it does seem like there was a little bit of over-engineering or maybe over-optimism about their ability to kind of centrally plan how Ethereum staking would be composed. Um, and in, in a certain sense, it's backfiring now when they see, oh, wow, okay, it looks like regardless of what we want people to do, people want a Lido-like thing. They want a liquid staking token. And uh, you know now we have to deal with the consequence of that without a lot of tools with which to mediate that that uh, market. I, I think there's, there's another aspect to this that's actually extremely important in practice that people don't consider, um, which is that the reason you have some of these dominant effects is not just strictly the idea that like, hey, this particular staking pool service is the safest or has the longest track record. But it's actually liquidity based where like people who have the staked asset, they may need to borrow against it for some reason or they may need to sell and not wait the withdrawal period. And the withdrawal period is, is for a security reasons that you can't just like immediately take your staked ETH and remove uh, ETH out of it. But you may just like, I don't know, you use this collateral or like you got liquidated somewhere and you need to post more money somewhere or you you know need ETH for some other reason. And Lido from its inception focused insanely hard on 
uh, incredible, insane, probably insane in the in hindsight amounts of liquidity incentives to get to that point. I think an interesting point about the Rocket Pool model is it's like Rocket Pool itself kind of is a bad model in some ways because the RPL token it doesn't have any other fee accrual mechanism. So like if their RPL token goes down a lot, then like the security of the Rocket Pool validators is actually quite quite a bit in trouble. On the other hand, if Ethereum offers a Rocket Pool like thing, that's great because it has natural transaction carry coming in from all the transactions. So Tarun, can you can and, you real quick for the audience explain the oh, difference yeah. between the Lido system and the Rocket yeah, Pool yeah. system? So yeah, so so very very like high level. The Lido system is like a staking pool, so you give you know, your ETH to it. So maybe you put two ETH, Hasib puts in 30 ETH, Robert puts in 16.9 ETH, uh, and Tom puts in 400 ETH. Um, and it makes a pool that adds up everything, which is around 550 or something like that. And basically it takes that pool and it says, okay, each of us own a pro rata share. So like Tom owns 400 divided by that. And I own, you know, 1.6 or whatever divided by that. And um, then that pool is is owned by a single validator, or well, really a set of validators who who use that uh, stake, use the the pool that we gave to to get to where they are. Rocket Pool does something slightly different, where it has the validators contributing some of the ETH and the depositors contributing some of the ETH. And in order to deal with getting slashed, so the losses, how do the losses flow through? From the validators and then to the users is that the validators ETH sort of is usually the first tranche. Um, but if 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 say like there's more slashing, you need some more security, they have their own token that you have to stake. The problem is that thing has no real fundamental fee-driven value. So like, yes, as a, if there's a great Ponzi time, like yes, it, it will grow high and whatever. But when the value of that crashes, the security of their system is much more unsafe. Whereas in the the Lido type of system, as long as there's many validators validating a single pool so that you don't get slashed for, for liveness faults, it is generally significantly safer. Now, there's other consequences because Lido is the governance token, but you know, Lido is introducing dual staking. So I think that hopefully should ameliorate a lot of the that also disclaimer, we are we are also Lido investors. Um, but I, I think the 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 rocket pool models have a lot of merit because they do kind of lower they do force the validators to have skin in the game in a and in the Lido model they will have more but like they make it more explicit. But I guess my point is if Ethereum validators who are earning income in Ethereum are able to provide some fraction of their income into as sort of the, their their cost they have to provide to the structure. It makes a lot more sense than Ethereum validators who are earning RPL, selling RPL or borrowing against RPL to contribute ETH. Because like then that RPL token, they're kind of like net negative on the RPL. They're either selling it or borrowing against it. So it, it, you can have these like very bad interactions and the worst case, like really bad slashing events. Now, of course, there's barely been any slashing. Um, but I guess long story short is I actually think this enshrining thing is like once you do one thing, you have to do everything. They Ethereum and try and the rocket pool type of thing. Well, now they're going to have to source liquidity for, you know, I, I saw people jokingly on the internet calling it EF ETH, like Ethereum Foundation ETH. So for EF ETH, uh, you you would need to have liquidity, and the liquidity would need to own be owned in some ways by the protocol. And now you'd be enshrining a Uniswap, 
to, to, to ensure that I could trade out of EF, ETH to ETH. And then I need it in trying to compact, you know, like, so I actually think it's not an easy thing to do. And I think that that if you don't understand the market dynamics, you might think like, okay, we just add the one gizmo and it works, but it's actually this kind of quite complex web and you may have to actually continually import the whole thing. So maybe that's There's my, that's my that. more it's nuanced also, view of that. Yeah, it's also the reality is that, look, anything that Ethereum decides to enshrine goes at Ethereum development speed, which means it's going to be like fucking two years. There's going to be like a three-part upgrade and it's going to be like two years or three years from now that we actually get the like Ethereum enshrined rocket pool or whatever. And until then, okay, well, the, the, whatever centralization vectors you're worried about in, the, in, in, just the, in just the raw marketplace are going to continue moving forward for the next three years. So one way or another, like I, I think, I mean, this, this is a, a, a drum that I constantly like to beat, which is that, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially in crypto economic design, really want to shy away from social consensus as being an enforcement mechanism in blockchains. And they just are. Like they just always are. They always have been. And I think uh, Dankrad posted something about this, which I which I very strongly agreed with, which is that um, the the number one thing that keeps Ethereum on path is not the crypto economic mechanisms. The, like they're, they're never enough. They're, you never are going to have a sufficiently specified crypto economic system that no bad thing can happen given all the incentives that you've constructed around you. You always need to have some culture that's pushing people in the right direction um, and a large part of that, you can see it from Lido. Lido is intentionally trying to contort themselves with this, you know, dual staking and this, you know, the governance structure that they have uh, to try to make it so that so that they are responsive to the overall needs of Ethereum governance, rather than just, you know, token go up. One last thing I would add, though, the enshrining of the zk thing is actually quite useful because that actually would mean that the Ethereum validators are forced to provide ZK proofs versus like having to completely bootstrap a new proving true, network. True, true. But so I actually but, think that is a place where, where it might actually make more sense. Yes, but it's it's another example of that place where the reality is that not everybody is fully EVM compatible, right? Every There's, there's yeah, a range sure, 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 of sure. EVM compatibility. And so basically, if you say like, ah, well, we're only going to do this for true EVM compatibility or EVM execution, then now you're throwing up everybody under the bus who made a different design choice in... Uh, building their other ZKV, VMs can other VMs ZKVM. can emulate partial EVM compatibility. So it's a question of whether the validators are willing to. Oh, right. So, but then but there's anyway. a lot of nuances to get right, so that it's actually yes, neutral among all implementations. It, that will take, or, that right. take five or six years. Don't worry, <laughs> five or six years. Okay, good, 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 good. All right, we're we're up on time. Um, I really hope day one of the SBF trial was not that interesting because we have nothing to say about it. Quick predictions: What do you guys think happens in the beginning of the SBF trial? Tom, you first. I think he's going to try to throw some curveball. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of restrictions on what he can say has been happening to him. Like he can't say he's been held in jail and he can't say he was sort of forced to turn over uh, uh, you know, FTX power to, to Ryan or give it bankruptcy. And so that's been interesting. But I mean, it sounds like he's been researching and planning something for a while. And even, even with this whole thing around like leaking Caroline's diary, I feel like he has some sort of weird trick up his sleeve. So I think there's going to be something that I expect the unexpected is, is maybe the prediction, which is kind of boring. All right. Uh, Tarun, what's your prediction? His parents will be on the stand at some point. All right, Robert. I think there's going to be some bullshit because it's always what you want least to happen happens. Um, I think there's going to be like a mistrial or something ridiculous. <laughs> wow, you're uh, a truth. I would. During notification. Yeah, I jury notification, I would guess that uh, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of uh, disruptions in the trial. They're going to get covered very widely. 
He's probably going to be shaking uncontrollably. He's going to ask for drugs in the middle of something. I think, I think there's going to be a lot of disruptions in the trial. That, that's going to be my guess. So anyway, we will see or we will be invalidated by the time this episode sees the light of day. Uh, but until then, enjoy the trial. Or if you can, try to avoid the trial because I feel like it's, it's bad for your soul to uh, pay too much attention to stuff like this. Anyway, until next week. Thanks, everybody. 